Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Good morning, and you're very welcome to this morning's Signpost webinar. My name is Pat Murphy, Head of Environment Knowledge Transfer with, with Chagask. Our signpost series is brought to you in conjunction with Dairy Sustainability Ireland, Food Drink Ireland, Skillnet and the National Rural Network. Uh, this morning, we're delighted to welcome Professor Tommy Boland from uh, the Department of Agriculture, our uh, School of Agriculture and Food Science in, in UCD. Tommy, you're very welcome. Thanks very much, Pat. And uh, to help us with the questions, uh, we're joined by, by Catherine Keena. Catherine, again, you're very welcome. Morning, Pat and Tommy. Tommy, you'll be addressing us this morning on the, the multiple challenges of uh, in achieving sustainable pasture-based livestock production systems. Uh, a broad topic. A, a very broad topic, Pat. And maybe the title was a little bit ambitious when I said it, so I've maybe pared back a, a little bit from addressing the multiple challenges to a number of the challenges. Okay, okay. Yeah, there's, there's, there's no shortage. I suppose without further ado then, Tommy, if you were able to share your presentation, we'll, we'll proceed. Pat, thanks very much. And thanks to Yvonne and the team in Chagas Signpost for giving me the opportunity to speak this morning. Uh, what I'm going to discuss are, is in around the topic of addressing the multiple challenges in achieving sustainable pasture-based livestock production. And I'm really going to represent some of the work that's taken place within the School of Agriculture and Food Science in University College Dublin. And the work is, is not all my own work. It it's represents a combined effort from my colleagues here listed, uh, Helen Sheridan, Karina Pierce. Alan Kelly, Tomas Russell, and, and Liam McGrain, who works in AgTech UCD. If anybody's interested in hearing a little bit more about what we do in UCD, here are just some of the Twitter accounts, or you can contact me directly uh, via my email address if there's questions which I don't address uh, at the end of this morning's presentation. So just a, a very brief background. I'm sure many people on the call this morning are familiar with lines. Um, UCD Lions Farm is located just outside Dublin, uh, just off the M7. It's the research and teaching facility, particularly supporting the undergraduate and the postgraduate activities in the School of Agriculture and Food Science and in the School of Veterinary Medicine. But I'm sure nobody would be too surprised to hear that the, uh, the interest in the farm is increasing across the university over the last four or five years. There's about 250 hectares in the farm and we cover all the main agricultural enterprises including crops, uh, including tillage, uh, dairy, equine, sheep, and, and beef research. And, and more recently, we've also included the, the long-term pasture-based uh, research platform or the Lions long-term grazing platform on the farm. I understand that these slides are going to be shared with the attendees afterwards. So I've just included a, a quick link to a YouTube video, which does give a little bit more um insight and oversight into what we do at UCD Lions Farm for anybody who's interested in looking at that. So there's a lot of conversation around sustainability and sustainability can be a very complex term um, and, and trying to get a, get a good understanding of what it means. But I like this three-legged stool definition and the three legs to sustainability being economic, social and environmental. And probably quite a lot of the time we zone in and certainly in my research work, I was only on aspects of the environmental sustainability. But it is important to, to look at the economic and the social sustainability aspects of the whole sustainability piece. And that's what I'm going to start with this morning. And this week, we saw um, the export, uh, Board B export performance and prospects uh, were, were announced on Wednesday. 
And it showed that Irish agri-food and drink exports or Irish food and drink exports had increased by 22% in year-on-year terms, up to a value of just under 17 billion. That equates to a daily food export of around 46 million euros worth of food products and drink products being exported from, from our country, which is, I think, quite an impressive level of performance. When we look at the major contributing factors to that 17 billion or that almost 17 billion, we see that pasture-based activities are contributing a huge amount of that value. Almost 7 billion coming from the dairy sector, another 4 billion coming from meat and livestock, and then the consumer or the prepared consumer food section contributing another 3 billion. And again, many of our products produced in our pasture-based production systems will feed into that prepared consumer food section. So as an industry as a whole, as an agri-food industry, that's a very impressive level of performance. But we need to be very conscious as well of some of the challenges facing our exports and facing the value of the outputs which we're producing. If we look across the European Union and look at the inflation rate, um, up to November 2022 was running at just over 11%. Now, to put some context on that, the average inflation rate in the EU between 1997 and, and 2021 was 1.8%. So that's almost a tenfold increase in the rate of inflation across the European Union. And perhaps even more concerning <clears throat> when we look at the contributing factors to that overall inflation rate, we can see that the inflation rate in food is about 70% higher than the inflation rate across all items. And the reports just being released this morning, which are showing that consumer preferences in terms of their protein purchases are starting to change across the European Union, with consumers starting to step back a little bit from red meats and placing more of a focus, particularly on poultry or on, on, on the white meats in their, in their protein purchasing decisions. This high inflation rate has led to a drop in consumer confidence and the consumer confidence is running at historical lows across key economic regions, particularly across key markets um, into which we export our food products, whether that's the European Union or the OECD uh, countries across Europe and the United Kingdom. And there's some, some suggestions that the UK has already tipped into recession, which is going to place uh, pressure on our agri-food exports, of course. And then on the input cost side, facing the farming community, um, as we've, we've witnessed over the last 12 to 18 months, and it's, it's, it's looking likely to continue for the, for, the next, for the next foreseeable future, we see key commodities have also increased in, in cost, particularly from a farming perspective and, and from a pasture-based farming perspective, we see fertilizer costs and, and, and energy costs demonstrating dramatic increases in prices. So while the export values are good, there are pressures coming on to, uh, to, I suppose, challenge profitability at individual farm level. The next aspect of sustainability I want to mention briefly is the whole social sustainability. And while we have, at a national level, a, a very well-performing agri-food industry, at that agri-food industry and those export values I just referenced, they're built on tens of thousands of small individual building blocks, which are the Irish family farms and the, the men and women uh, working around the country to produce those food products that contribute to our agri-food exports. <clears throat> My colleagues in UCD and elsewhere have been doing a lot of work looking at mental health uh, in the farming community. 
And a headline figure from that research conducted by Tomas Russell and his colleagues is that almost one in four of Irish farmers are considered at risk for suicide. And that's a multiple higher than the general population. <clears throat> and there are various drivers behind this uh, suicide risk. About one in two farmers experience moderate to extremely severe depression. About 45% of farmers experience moderate to extremely severe anxiety. And about 40% of farmers experience moderate to extremely severe stress. So these are really, really concerning factors uh, for our farming population and the farming population which contribute to, um, to the success of our sector. And when um, these participants in the survey were asked from a list of 30 farming specific stressors, what caused them, um, I suppose, the most stress or what were the main drivers behind uh, these, I suppose, negative mental health outcomes? The three top stressors identified in that survey were government policies designed to reduce climate change, outsiders not understanding farming, and concern over the future of the farm. And they all really speak to sustainability in the broader context. So that's just trying to set the scene a little bit um, for some of the additional challenges uh, which the sector is facing. And now I'm going to go on and talk a little bit more about the, the, the on-farm environmental sustainability aspects and challenges and, and, and what we can do to address those challenges. So that's where we're going to go to next with the environmental leg of the sustainability stool. Something that came up at the UCD School of Agriculture um, and, and Food Science Research Symposium before Christmas was a term referred to as, as the carbon goggles or having a focus on a single metric. And there's also this term of, of carbon tunnel vision. And I think it's really important because for the last you know, months and years, a lot of the conversation around the sustainability challenges for our sector has been in the area of, of greenhouse gas emissions and setting the sectorial targets. And I think it's really important that we don't lose sight of the other challenges, such as issues around biodiversity loss, um, air quality, water quality. And, and we're actually seeing action uh, there in some of those other sectors, probably a little bit advanced of seeing action in, in, in carbon emissions when we're talking about policy instruments. And what I'm referring to there is the, is the rebanding in the nitrates directive, for example, which is going to have uh, knock-on impacts in, in production in, in this production year. So in our work at UCD Lions Farm and within the School of Agriculture and Food Science, we try insofar as possible to be cognizant of these multiple challenges uh, facing our pasture-based production systems. And I could have a dairy cow or a sheep at the center of this graphic just the same. It, it just so happens to be beef animals in this, in this scenario. But in our work, we, we try to take long-term scenarios into consideration so coming up with a solution that only works over the space of weeks or months is not really a solution. We need to have solutions in the longer term. And in any of our studies, we'll obviously be interested in animal performance. We're also interested in the pasture, biodiversity, soil health, water quality, emissions, profitability, and a whole wide range of other factors. So really what I'm trying to do is highlight the multidisciplinary nature of the challenge uh, facing our sector and also the multidisciplinary nature of the research ourselves in UCD and, and many other uh, research organizations are undertaking at the moment to address these challenges. 
I'm sure everybody on the call is acutely familiar with these targets, so I'm not going to labour them. But we have we have challenges around carbon, around greenhouse gas emissions, around water quality, around biodiversity. I could have also put in here animal welfare, reducing pesticide usage, reducing availability of animal medicines and so on and so forth. So there are, there are a number of challenges facing the sector. And I suppose over the last decades, we've come through a period of really impressive, I suppose, expansion in global food production and really impressive expansion in the value of our agri-food exports as a nation. But now we're faced with challenges in terms of the inputs we have been using to achieve that level of output and that level of output increase. And that's where the, where the future research and where our, our current research at, at, at UCD uh, is, is actually focused at the moment. In all this conversation around challenges, I think it's very easy to overlook um, you know, the benefits of pasture-based livestock production. We're located in a particular region of the world where the rainfall is fairly stable and fairly predictable. Um, the growing season is pretty long and we can produce large quantities of grass and forages. And we farm animals that can take these grasses, which are contain nutrients unavailable for human consumption and convert them into nutrient-dense, highly sought-after animal products, that that be meat or, or, or milk or, or any, of, any of their derivatives. And if we just take a kilo of lamb and we could do produce the same stats for a kilo of milk or a kilo of beef, we can see that at a systems level, a kilo of lamb converts around 27 kilograms of feed into that human edible product. Of that 27 kilograms, 26 kilograms is forage, which is otherwise unavailable directly for human consumption. And about one kilogram is comprised of concentrate feeds. And again, the vast, vast majority of that concentrate feed stuff can be made up of feed ingredients that are not directly uh, available for human consumption. I'm not saying it always is, but it can be made up of those feed ingredients not available for human consumption. <clears throat> And that's actually a really important contribution of, of ruminant livestock to global food supplies by opening up an area of land not otherwise available for food production through the use of those grazed forages. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about some of the work taking place now at UCD Lions Farm. The first thing I'm going to talk about is our high output grass-based spring milk production system. And this is a project of work that's been ongoing for a number of years now. It's a collaboration between the School of Agriculture and Food Science and the School of Veterinary Medicine. And there are a number of people involved, but I suppose the overall program is led by uh, Karina Pierce from the School of Ag and Finbar Mulligan for, from the School of Veterinary Medicine. And we all know why grazing systems have developed um, and, you know, a lot of the grazing systems have developed based on low output per cow with a view to maximizing stocking rate. That gives good cost control. You can avail of high stocking rates and high profitability is impossible. Or sorry, high profitability is possible. Uh, important correction there. High profitability is possible in those uh, pasture-based lower output production systems. I suppose the reasons why we have gone for a grass-based system based on a higher output per cow uh, are, are multiple. They range around environmental concerns due to increasing animal numbers, a limited availability of land or fragmented land resources for a number of farmers around the country, limited buildings and infrastructure, limited skilled labour available, and the potential for poor work-life balance in farm families through, through, through 
um, I suppose, very high cow numbers in individual herds. What is important to stress in terms of this high output or higher output system is that grass remains key and forage remains key in the feed budget. Uh, there's a lot of detail here on this slide, but basically what we're looking at is that the majority of the feed inputs across the year are coming from grazed grass and grass silage, uh, with the target in our, our higher output production system to feed approximately 1.5 tonnes of concentrate on a fresh weight basis to cows uh, each lactation. <clears throat> you will see, I suppose, at a national level, is about a tonne of concentrates going into the average dairy cow in Ireland, and there would be other systems which would be promoting a lower level of concentrate input. But that's the system we have chosen uh, in UCD. The herd targets then as follows. We have a stocking rate on, on the milking platform of 3.27 livestock units per hectare. The whole farm stocking rate is, is 2.33 livestock units per hectare. So it, it wouldn't be a very high whole farm stocking rate. A target milk yield per cow of between 7.5 and 8,000 kilograms. That would put us in, in the high banding in the nitrates perspective. A milk solids production per cow was 625 kilograms. Um, I suppose for a long period of time, higher output cows would have been associated with poor fertility, but we're looking at a six-week in-calf target rate of 75%. And as I said, a concentrated input of 1.5 tonnes per cow per, per lactation or per year. So they were the targets when we started out. What sort of a level is being achieved? Uh, we don't have the final data compiled for 2022 uh, as of yet, but we're looking from 2016 across to 2021. Uh, we're achieving about 7,500 kilograms of milk yield per cow, uh, a milk solids output per cow of 629, 630 kilograms. So we're just on that kilogram of milk solids per kilogram of cow live weight um, ratio. And a milk solids output per hectare across the whole farm of just under 1,500 kilograms of milk solids output per hectare, which is, I think people can agree, it's a, it's a fairly respectable level of performance. But just to reiterate, this is not a system built on high levels of concentrate input. It's a higher level of concentrate input compared to the national average, uh, moderately higher, I would suggest. But grass remains the key, I suppose, component in this production system. We're seeing 11 tonnes of grass dry matter utilised per hectare, another tonne and a half of proximity of silage dry matter per hectare. This is achieved from a, a fertiliser input of 210 kilograms of nitrogen per hectare, 25 kilograms of, of phosphorus, 95 kilograms of potassium. We are, and work has been ongoing for a number of years by the team to increase the level of clover in the swards. Um, we're achieving about 275, 280 days of grass, about 80 farm covers completed per year and 9.7 grazings per paddock per year. So again, um, probably getting fairly close to a lot of those the grass 10 targets that, that people will be familiar with. And then if we look at the, the forage grown, we're somewhere between 13 and 14 and a half tonnes of forage dry matter uh, grown uh, per, per, per hectare per year. The obvious year that stands out there on this graph is 2018. That's where we had uh, quite a severe drought by, by Irish terms and, and by UC Lines terms. We are farming in one of the drier areas of the country. We would have an annual rainfall of about 750 uh, millimetres. <clears throat> so it's, it's quite a dry farm by Irish standards. And we do need pretty consistent rainfall to ensure we don't run into soil moisture deficits throughout the year. So that was, that was very apparent in 2018. 
In terms, I suppose, of one of the key conversation points for the dairy sector at the moment is around nitrogen and nitrogen use efficiency. Um, the farm and the systems herd does quite well from that regard. We're looking at a, a nitrogen utilization efficiency rate of just under 40% in 2021. Looking across the, the, the National Farm Survey, the national average is approximately 25.6%. Um, I suppose this slightly higher level of nitrogen utilization efficiency is driven to a large extent by higher milk production per cow, uh, reducing fertilizer usage uh, with the, again, that's improving with the increasing clover content in this ward. And then we've done a lot of work in the recent past on concentrate uh, formulation and particularly the concentrate protein percentage in the diets, which has probably fed through into the industry now at this stage as well. So I mentioned earlier that the key attribute of our pasture-based livestock production systems is their ability to utilize grazed grass. Um, but for various reasons at various stages of the year, let it be grass supply or milk production requirements, uh, there is a requirement to offer some level of concentrate supplementation. And regardless of whether that's a, a lower level or a higher level, there is still a requirement across most of our pasture-based dairy production systems for some level of concentrate supplementation of grass. The team in, in UCD, Karina, Pearson, Zoe, McCain, Finbar, Mulligan, have been looking at, I suppose, two broad areas in relation to what we can do to enhance the sustainability of this concentrated supplementation and pasture. Uh, number one is around um, <clears throat> native feed ingredients. You know, we've, we've high levels of feed imports into the country each year, um, and, you know, they can be associated with increased carbon footprints. Now, let's not be naive. We don't have the current or perhaps even at all the future tillage production capacity to replace all these imported feedstuffs with native feedstuffs. But there certainly is scope to include more native uh, feed ingredients in our, in, our, in our feeding systems. Work has been conducted looking at barley, which can obviously be produced in the country compared to maize. Um, and when our cows were offered alpha grass plus a barley-based concentrate, uh, they produced more milk and a greater yield of milk solids per day compared to cows fed grass plus a maize-based concentrate. So it just shows the potential to have some positive impact on animal performance by inclusion of native ingredients. There was also work then comparing barley versus oats. And, you know, anybody who can remember back far enough will know that oats was once a very important part of the Irish agri-sector and is increasing in importance again, I would suggest. And the cows fed a note-based concentrate. They had a higher fat concentration in milk and it was higher in unsaturated fatty acids or, or the good fats present in that milk. And that also resulted in milk that was more suitable for processing. Um, so again, we're seeing some benefits of inclusion of oats in the diet for, for our dairy cows. Uh, perhaps a more topical area then as well is looking, our, our work has been done to reduce the crude protein content in the diet of, of the dairy cow. We all know, or we all should know, that, that grass and grazed grass and grass plus clover swords or grass swords receiving very high levels of fertilizer nitrogen application will have a high crude protein content. Um, and there's probably limited value in feeding high crude protein concentrates uh, to, to supplement or to support that grass diet. So some of the work the team has conducted has looked at reducing the crude protein content in the diet, in the concentrate proportion of the diet, from 18% down to 14%. And the results would show that when that work uh, was undertaken, there was no negative impact on milk yield or no negative impact on milk solids production across the main grazing season.
Then I suppose the boundaries are pushed a little bit further in terms of going from a 14% concentrate down to a 12% concentrate. <clears throat> and again, one of those 12% concentrates contained uh, non-native ingredients, the other contained uh, native ingredients. And while we did see a numerical decline in milk yield of about 1.3 to 1.4 kilograms of milk yield per day, there was no significant difference in the fat and protein yield or the milk solid yield achieved by those cows. And I think they are important results. Usually when, we're, when we conduct research, we want to see differences between treatments. In this case, I think the desire was that you wouldn't see a difference between milk production when you were reducing the protein content. What we do know, however, is that by reducing the quantity of protein consumed by our dairy cows, that we will reduce the quantity or the amount of nitrogen excreted by our dairy cows onto pasture, because there's an almost straight line relationship between nitrogen consumed and nitrogen excreted in our ruminant livestock. So there's a win here in terms of reducing the quantity of nitrogen being excreted onto the pasture. So I'll, I'll park the dairy cow there for the moment and I'll move on to the other area where uh, we've been researching for the last uh, 10 or 12 years at, at Lions Farm. And we're not the only ones conducting research in this area. John Finn has been working in this area for, for, for a number of years and more recently colleagues in, in, in Grange and Moore Park and, and, and Nat and Rye have become involved as well. But Helen Sheridan has been leading this research program in UCD for, for 12 or 14 years now at this stage. And I'm looking to be involved in Bridget Lynch was centrally involved when she was in UCD and, and many others as well. So multi-species wards are receiving a huge amount of attention at the moment, I think. Um, and what we consider a multi-species ward in Ireland is really built on a six-species mixture. Uh, that six-species mixture contains perennial ryegrass and timothy, white clover, red clover, chicory and plantain. <clears throat> and each of those species or each of those functional groups, if you take grass as a functional group, legumes and, and herbs as a functional group, each of those functional groups and each of those species are included there for a particular purpose. But one of the big benefits of having a multi-species ward, and it's demonstrated nicely, I think, in this graphic produced by Shona Baker, is the different rooting depths achieved by the different plants in the mixture. So that allows the different plants to avail of nutrients at different, uh, I suppose, sward soil horizons. And also, particularly in periods of low rainfall, these deeper rooting plants can draw up moisture from deeper in the soil horizon, which will allow them to be more resilient to drought. And, and there's lots of work from Ireland and elsewhere to, to show that to be the case. But I suppose our work, um, or, or my proportion of the work in particular, is interested in looking at how animals perform when they're fed these multi-species wards. And for animals to perform, we need to grow herbage. So we've been running a beef system study with Hereford steers from the dairy herd now since uh, 2018. We have three sward types. We have a ryegrass monoculture, a ryegrass white clover system, and a multi-species sward system containing those six species I just made reference to. The major difference between the three systems, in addition to their plant makeup, is the fact that the perennial ryegrass sward receives 205 kilograms of nitrogen per hectare per year, and the other two swords <clears throat> receive 115 kilograms, or sorry, the other two swords receive 90 kilograms of nitrogen per hectare per year. And what we've seen with our multi-species swords, they're capable of producing an extra two and a half tonne of forage dry matter per hectare uh, compared to the perennial ryegrass only swords. 
we feed those swords to our to our animals. So we have three herds of, of cattle of Hereford steers grazing those swords. They start grazing at about 15 weeks of age and they're carried through until slaughter at around 20 months. When they're housed, they're fed silage made from their respective treatments. So cattle which graze perennial ryegrass during the summer will receive perennial ryegrass silage during the winter and, and so on. Compared to the perennial ryegrass animals, animals grazing either the white clover or the multi-species swords are reaching slaughter about four to five weeks earlier than, than their perennial ryegrass uh, counterparts. So we're reducing the period of finish uh, for those animals, which is quite important and we'll see in a moment from a carbon and an economic perspective. To mention carbon footprint which is and carbon output, which is really important, when we look at the carbon footprint per kilogram of beef, uh, live weight, and exactly the same statistics show per kilogram of beef carcass produced, we're seeing that compared to a perennial ryegrass animals, um, the animals grazing either the ryegrass plus white clover or the multi-species sward have a 15% uh, lower carbon footprint. And this has been driven by two factors. It's been driven by the reduced nitrogen fertilizer application rates, hence reduced nitrous oxide emission in the system. And it's also been contributed to by the fact that those animals are being finished earlier. Obviously those 30 or 35 days are coming off the end of the animal's life. And that's the period when the animal will produce its largest quantity of methane emissions. <clears throat> we are doing work at the moment to see if there is any, I suppose, impact of the multi-species wards on the daily methane emissions from the individual animals. And that may further add some benefits to the multi-species system in terms of the carbon footprinting perspective. The bottom line is important in all these interventions. Um, and I think anytime we're looking at enhancing environmental sustainability, we also need to be conscious of the economic impact of those interventions. What we have seen with our ryegrass and white clover and our multi-species systems is an almost 70% increase in net margin um, compared to the perennial ryegrass only system. <laughs> and the perennial ryegrass profitability was not poor in this study. Why is this difference occurring? Again, it's, it's coming from the reduced fertilizer nitrogen input and the reduced uh, level of concentrate feeding. And I suppose these figures were calculated in February, March of 2022. So they include the costs incurred in 2020 and 2021. They don't include 2022 costs, which are, 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 are substantially higher than what we saw in 2021. I displayed that graphic earlier on looking at the multiple, I suppose, areas we're looking at. And we're also doing a lot of environmental measurements and biodiversity measurements and water quality measurements. Just to quickly make reference to one, <clears throat> when we looked at the earthworm populations and the earthworm activity in our multi-species swords, we see that where the swords contain legumes in particular, but mixtures in general would show uh, much higher earthworm populations and much higher earthworm activities. And particularly when we measure <clears throat> earthworm activity as uh, on the basis of earthworm casts, Olaf Schmidt and his team in UC and Helen Sheridan would have shown that we get better rates of water infiltration into the soils on which uh, multi-species swards and legume-containing swards are growing. So what does this mean? Well, it, it reduces the risk of surface runoff and it reduces the rapid transfer of rainfall into streams and into waterways, which has the potential um, if adopted on a wider scale to reduce flood risk across catchments.
So again, a very important, and so one of a number of, of environmental benefits we've been recording uh, with the multi-species wards. There are challenges as well with multi-species wards, which I'll be happy to discuss in the questions and answer section. So that's some of the work we have done to, to date. Let's look at, at very briefly at some of the work coming up in the future. Uh, Zoe McKay um, and, and, and Keen Minogue is the PhD student working in this and working with Michael Deneen in Chagas Moor Park on a pasture nitrogen utilization efficiency program. And particularly here, our focus is around the usage of plantain. <clears throat> and plantain is, is a herb that's been getting more attention in recent years. We've probably all seen it in hedgerows and even probably most, most commonly on waste ground around the country. Um, and for years, I suppose our swords have been dominated by ryegrass. More recently, a little bit of work on ryegrass and white clover, a lot of work on ryegrass and white clover, and a little bit of work on multi-species wards. But work in New Zealand has placed a particular focus on plantain. And plantain is a herb with a deep taproot. It produces a number of secondary compounds which can influence what happens in the animal. They can also influence what happens in the soil. And there's work from New Zealand, as I said, to show that reduced uh, urinary nitrogen excretion is actually occurring in cows which are being fed plantain. So that's what we're going to look at in lines. Can we reproduce those results in an Irish context? And if so, it has a potential to offer, I suppose, or to offer a solution to some of our nitrogen challenges. Given the fact that we feed a tonne and a half of concentrates to our dairy cows each year as well, we also have the opportunity to look at concentrate supplementation strategies. Um, in addition to reducing the protein content, are there other ingredients we can utilize which will allow us to reduce the concentrate input or, sorry, and reduce the nitrogen excretion from our dairy cows? So that's work that's, that's, that's going to take place in 2023. <clears throat> the last piece of work that's ongoing is the use of, I suppose, novel delivery methods um, to, to, to feed additives or to deliver additives to, to our dairy cows and our beef cattle and our pasture-based livestock. And a piece of work Stafford Vigers and myself and Zoe are doing with Terra Nutritech, Bioatlantis and Moonsys is looking at can we feed novel seaweed extracts uh, through the water stream or deliver novel seaweed extracts through the pipe water system to our cows at pasture for animals which are not receiving as much or any concentrated supplementation compared to the dairy cow at lines. And we're starting to see some really promising and really exciting initial results from this approach. So it'll open up potentially a wider application of feed additives uh, across, the, across the entire industry. A lot of this work, <clears throat> I suppose, is, is being facilitated and being supported by the fact that in UCD, we have a very close relationship with, with the ag industry as a whole. And Neil McGreen and, and Eve Collins and their team in the UCD Ag Tech Centre are focused now on promoting and accelerating startups in Ireland and beyond. And we're currently seeing the construction of the Ag Tech Centre at UCD Lines Farm. And over the last two years, there's been the it's been the accelerator campaign taking place where startups have been invited in for an intensive training program and also their facilities, or sorry, their technologies have been tested at UCD Lions Farm using the facilities available to us. And this is one, I suppose, one of the main assets of the AgTech Research Centre, the fact that it's based on the farm and it can access the resources of the farm to support ag innovation um, to, to allow us to address the sustainability challenges. So Pat, I'm not sure how I'm doing for time, but I'm going to I'm going to finish up there and hopefully that's yeah. just giving a quick overview of some of what we're doing uh in, in terms of addressing the challenges facing pasture-based production. Okay, that was a whirlwind. Uh and thank you for that. Uh 
Uh, could I remind people that if they have questions, uh, to use the the the, the uh, questions and answers uh, to to uh, put the questions to you. I suppose just a few things just uh, to start. Um, uh, you you you've outlined a number of 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 areas of uh, promise in into the future, and and I suppose the multi species sword one is is one where. There's been a lot of conversations going on, but how close do you think we are to concluding that this is the way forward for for past for pastures in Ireland into the future? Yeah, I think we're still a step away from that path. To be very honest with you, I think the the multi species wards have demonstrated huge potential, and you know I could make I'd be confident in making a few statements around them now, in terms of feeding them to beef cattle or or to sheep. If we feed multi-species wards to beef cattle or sheep, it'll, it'll increase their level of performance, their level of average daily gain and reduce their period to slaughter. And we've multiple studies from Ireland and elsewhere to show that. <clears throat> the work on the dairy cow is probably less advanced than it has been with, with the beef or the sheep animal. So that work is still ongoing. It's never going to be a solution for every farmer in Ireland, just like no technology is going to be a solution for every farmer in Ireland. So I would view multi-species wards like a feed additive um, or, or like many of the other technologies as another tool in the toolbox. Um, and I would also, I suppose, make the point that you know, we've decades and decades of research gone into perennial ryegrass and perennial ryegrass white clover more recently the last couple of decades. And there are still a huge number of research questions to be asked of those wards. And we continue and your colleagues in Moorpark and Johnstown and elsewhere continue to ask those questions. We've really been just working with multi-species wards <clears throat> for a very short period of time relative to that. So there's, there's lots of questions still to be asked. You know, the, the main questions I, I would see at this stage are what's the best establishment technique? Um, what can we do around the persistency? Because a herb like chicory in particular or plantain, they do, they do not persist in this ward to the same extent that a grass plant will persist in this ward. So we have a couple of decisions to make there. Do we view those plants as being important in our mixture? And, and, and we believe they are. Then how do we keep those plants in the sward? Or maybe more accurately, how do we bring them back into the sward after they disappear? And that's not a full reseed. That cannot be a full reseed for, for, for all sorts of reasons. And the, there, there are questions around weeds in multi-species wards. Almost all of our work would show that, you know, there is not a weed issue with a multi-species ward. We actually have lower weed ingress. Now, if you have an absolutely filthy paddock before you saw multi-species wards, most likely you're going to have a very, very dirty paddock after you saw multi-species wards. If that happens, you have no herbicide approach to take. And then <clears throat> the final comment I'll just make on the multi-species wards there, Pat, and I could talk about them all day, but I'm sure nobody wants to listen to me, <laughs> is... Our work on multi-species wards has really focused on a six-species mixture, two grasses, two legumes, and two herbs. And we've been looking at comparing that to an intensively managed perennial ryegrass monoculture or a ryegrass plus white clover sward. A multi-species ward could cover anything from four to 40 species. You know, so as a term, it's almost, or it can be meaningless because it describes so much that it actually doesn't describe anything so I should probably restart referring to our multi-species ward as a six-species mixture rather than a multi-species ward, just to clarify that fact. Okay. I wouldn't mind taking you back right to the beginning of, of, of your presentation where you, you talked about the mental health issue of, of, of farmers. And uh, I think there's a, a lot of work out there also on the, the more physical health side of farming, of farmers as well. 
I mean, what you presented there was highly worrying. Uh, and uh, I, I'm just wondering, I, I think the, the, the question of are we doing enough in this space is probably pretty obvious. I don't think we are. Uh, but what can be done to try and address this a huge problem as, as I see it? Yeah, it's, it's it's a huge problem, and the answer to that question, Pat, is is really far beyond my my range of expertise. Um, but you know, my colleagues Tomas Russell and his team in UC, they're, they're doing a lot of work work in that, and really what they're trying to do now is to attract more funding to further interrogate what's happening at at farm level, and as you said rightly, try to come up with some solutions, and. We can get caught up in headlines quite often, I think, in 17 billion euros worth of exports or, or a, a greenhouse gas reduction target of 25% by 2030. But for any of those headlines to, to, to be achieved or to materialise, it is dependent on the 120 or 130,000 farms and farming families around the country that are supporting those activities or that are required to make changes to meet those targets. And in addition to 120 or 30,000 farms, there are 120 or 30,000 farm families involved there. And if the farmer had be the husband or the wife or the mother or the father, if they're not farming that land, most likely somebody else will. But if they're not parenting those children, then there is nobody else to fulfill that role. So it's really important in terms of the farm and our family structure and those individuals that we can address those mental health challenges and indeed the physical health challenges. Okay, Catherine, questions starting to fly in. Yeah, question coming in. And first of all, Tammy, I'd just like to say I loved and welcomed the broad uh, focus on sustainability in your presentation. I think it's it's uh, really good. Questions, um, what role do universities have in getting knowledge to farmers if when they don't have a, a direct knowledge transfer department themselves? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good question, Catherine. I think... We're probably seeing we're probably having more and more one to one interaction or, or, or group interaction with farmers than we would have had before. Um, and particularly some of the developments that have taken place at Lyons Research Farm in the last uh, decade or so, the, the Dairy Education and Research Centre and the, the long term grazing platform has attracted a lot of in, a lot of attention and interest from farmers. So we get farmer groups coming in. But we're a small <clears throat> group of people working in that area and you can only accommodate so many individual groups before it becomes um, uh, quite quite onerous and takes over your life, really. Um, our real avenue for outreach is through the education of undergraduates in both the agri-science sector and the veterinary medicine sector. So these are people who are going to enter the industry and interact with farmers on a daily basis, whether as, a, as an ag scientist or a vet. And that's the avenue we're taking. We're we're bringing this latest education or this latest research into our educational um, programs, our undergraduate and our postgraduate programs, and and trying to equip our students and our graduate with the most up to date information. And then the graduates take that out to the sector. Very good. Um, just one question. Um, you use the term native uh, feed ingredient. Now, myself as a biodiversity person, native plant species have a probably a very different connotation, plants that have been growing wild for 10,000 years. Um, and maybe it's a familiar term now that I'm just not, I haven't heard before, but are you talking about homegrown or Irish or? Yeah, I suppose grown in the country, Catherine, is what, what we're referring to there. So produced, okay. produced on tillage farms in Ireland. Yeah. Okay. Just yeah, I take, I take your point on native yeah. for a, from a biodiversity angle. Yeah. Um, do you have an opinion on how maize silage compares to maize concentrate as a supplement to cows at grass? This is in connection with the slide on barley and oats. 
Yeah, it's not a question we've looked at directly, but what I would say when you're comparing any feed ingredients is that you need to compare them on a nutrient basis, let that be protein, energy, minerals, fatty acids, etc. So it's the diet needs to be balanced with those essential nutrients. If you look at maize silage compared to maize grain, maize silage obviously contains a lot more fiber because it includes the entire plant, whereas maize grain is obviously just a starch containing grain. So it'll have a lower energy density probably a slightly higher protein content, uh, but a much higher fiber content. So you just need to be cautious and have your nutritionist balance that diet correctly. Okay. It's well established that clover and multi-species swords have advantages over perennial ryegrass only, but does a multi-species sward have a significant advantage over clover? Yeah, it's a good it's a good question. When we look at some of random performance statistics, we would see that the, the white clover um I'm talking about beef cattle here with the white clover containing sward will be quite close to the multi-species sward in terms of animal performance. We still see the multi-species sward doing a little bit better. It's It has a slightly, the multi-species animals are finished slightly quicker than the perennial ryegrass white clover animals. We did see, and we have seen to date on our studies, a higher herbage production with our multi-species swords compared to our ryegrass white clover swords. Now, it's really important to say in any of these comparisons, the ability of a ryegrass white clover sword to grow depends on the clover content in the sward. So if you compare a ryegrass white clover sward that has a low clover content to anything, it will be disadvantaged in that comparison. And what we have seen with our multi-species swords today, Catherine, is that the, the red clover is actually making a really big contribution to both the herbage production and we believe the nitrogen fixation capacity. So we always need to be really, really careful about making sweeping statements and saying a multi-species sward is better than a ryegrass and a white clover sward because it's very much com- um, dependent on what the makeup is. Tommy, Talk about the just, sorry, yeah. go on, Pat. Yeah, just going back to, I suppose, some of the multiple benefits of the, of the multi-species sward, and you, you, you mentioned, uh, I suppose, that the lower production of, of nitrates, uh, and I suppose there's a, there's a number of factors, co- and there's some research coming from New Zealand. Am I right in, in thinking that, that some of the uh, places where you have multi-species sward, you have put in an intensive instruct- infrastructure to look at that nitrate issue? Yeah, that's correct. So on that long-term grazing platform I mentioned, um, we have we basically we've twelve fields or twelve paddocks in that pat. Each each paddock is two hectares, but each two hectares is fully drained, or we call it hydrologically isolated, because as researchers you like to make things sound more complicated than they actually are. Um, but that allows us to measure all the water that's drained from those sites, and also most importantly, measure the nutrient content carried in that water, so nitrates. Um, phosphates, particulate matter, even, even the microbial populations of those soils. So it's, 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 it's something that we are going to be looking at in much more detail in the coming years. Okay, that should be interesting. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. We're looking forward to it. Um, back to how do multi-species wards fare if they are cut and ensiled as round bales? It's, um, I'll temper the comments I'm going to make on that because I'm being recorded and there's 380 people on the call. Probably the best silage and the worst silage uh, I have been involved in making at UC Lions Farm have come from multi-species wards. They do take longer to dry because generally the multi-species ward has a higher moisture content. So the best time to make multi-species ward silage is in the main grazing season, or sorry, the main silage season, so May, June time, when you have good drying conditions. Uh, We did make some multi-species ward silage in late August, early September one year, and it just wasn't dry enough. 
Um, and I suppose the big issue with that was the, was the bale integrity. They were so wet, the bales didn't retain their shape. Um, that was that was once off. Our more common experience with multi-species swords is when we make that multi-species sword silage and we feed it to our cattle. The calves, so this is from our beef system again, catching those calves going into the shed at seven, eight months of age for their first winter. The calves getting the multi-species silage are growing 200 grams per day faster than the calves getting the perennial ryegrass silage. So you can make really, really good quality silage with a really high feeding value from that multi-species silage. Thomas Maloney uh, did a PhD in Grange with Padre O'Kiley uh, a few years back. And again, Padre, our Thomas's work would support that. When the, the, the sward is dried, you can make very good quality silage from multi-species swords. I, I suppose just a, a, a divergent question, and there's a, a question there, is there an argument uh, for lifelong learning access for our improved life, lifelong learning access for farmers, as there is in, in, in other areas of work? And, and uh, are we doing a good enough job there in terms of, of uh, providing that to, to farmers? Well, I think that there's probably lifelong learning required for us all, Pat, whether you're a farmer or, or, or a farm advisor or a researcher or anything else. And I think yourself and your colleagues in Chagas do a very good job in terms of providing that lifelong learning for, for Chagas clients. But so, yes, there is a requirement. Um, but I think that, that there are so many competing interests for farmers' times and competing activities for advisors as well, particularly around the schemes and and, and the, the, the huge labour requirement involved in scheme compliance that absolutely there is there is requirement for continuing education and con- continuing personal and professional development for, for farmers, just like any profession. But there is a lot of thought required, I think, as to how, how best to deliver that. And I know probably yourself and your colleagues in Chagas spend a lot of time thinking and actioning on that very question. Thank Catherine. Yeah. Um, any work on pasture-fed pork effect on soil health? I, I cover a broad range, but I haven't got the pasture-fed pork yet, Catherine. That's okay. Um, what would be the transition time from ryegrass to multi-sword? Not sure. Yeah, that's a good question. And I suppose it really depends on, on what capacity farms have for reseeding. Um, so if you're looking at if you're looking at a 10% reseeding rate, and if every paddock on the farm was to be converted to multi-species swords, then you're looking at, at a 10-year transition. But it's important to, to understand in that as well that the paddock you receive today in 10 years time, unless that gets some additional attention, at least from our experience, it won't still be the same multi-species sword you've sown today in 10 years time. We've had, again, swords running for, for three years and we've seen the herb content diminish to a level which we weren't happy with. And we've come back in and rejuvenated those rejuvenated those swords. Okay, so that covers uh, queries about how long they last. Another question there, have you plans to investigate reductions in methane production due to increased multi-species swords feed? Yes, we have. We're doing that at the moment with the with the calves fed silage indoors. So the multi-species sword silage versus the ryegrass silage, we have these green feed machines in place investigating methane emissions. And we're just analysing the data from the grazing study that took place in August and September in 2022. So in the next few weeks, we should have the numbers on, on the first round of methane emissions from those cattle. Pat, you come in if you if I'm missing any. I'm just going down through them there. But uh, Tommy, great presentation. Um, I was on a talk recently about Trevor Gilliland, and he's of the opinion that Coxfoot is more suitable than Timothy in dry ground, and we should have separate advice for different soil types. What are your thoughts? 
I certainly agree we should have separate advice for different style types. And I, I kind of made reference to that earlier that a one size doesn't fit all here. And I also made reference to the fact that Lines is a very dry farm. Um, you know, so w- what happens in Lines won't necessarily be replicated on a farm which has has a higher rainfall. Um, the reason why we've gone with Timothy, we did have swords previously with Coxfoot. The reason why we've gone with Timothy is Timothy can, can achieve actually quite a good level of ground cover very, very early in the establishment of the sward. And we were using that as a tool to, I suppose, outcompete some of the weeds which may appear in the sward. Tommy, you, you mentioned their uh, drought and, and I suppose we've had a very good experiment over the last uh, uh, five seasons of, of, of drought with, with two severe droughts and a, and a few minor droughts. How have your your multi-species uh, uh, compared in their productive capability with, I suppose, both grass clover and and uh, uh, perennial ryegrass? Yeah, so I suppose the first thing I'll say, Pat, is the soil will eventually run out of water. So it doesn't matter what you grow, uh, it'll eventually deplete the water reserves in the soil or the evapotranspiration will eventually get rid of the water from the soil. So there's no, at least not that I'm aware of, I'm very slow to make definitive statements anymore because somebody will always pick me up on it. But there's there's, there's no plant that will grow continuously without water that I'm aware of yet. We were seeing during the drought periods that uh, during the periods of soil moisture deficit, we were seeing two to three times the growth rate on the multi-species swards compared to the perennial ryegrass and the perennial ryegrass white clover swards. The perennial ryegrass white clover swards were holding up a little bit longer than the perennial ryegrass in those drought or the, those low rainfall conditions, but not nearly to the same extent as the multi-species swards. And from a plant morphology perspective, that makes sense because you have things like chicory and red clover and plantain, which are sending roots down deeper into the sward, into the soil horizon to drop that moisture. And I suppose a a follow-on question on that in terms of, I suppose, management and and establishment and and keeping, uh, I mean, it's becoming well-established that if you want to to include clover, your, your soil fertility has to be very high. Uh, is it fair that we assume the same principle for a multi-species sward? Yeah, I think that I think that's a fair starting point. It certainly doesn't want to be any lower than it is for a perennial ryegrass monoculture. So uh, things like legumes, they they like the higher pH and and the airborne populations in the soil as well. Also like that slightly higher the higher pH. So yes, you're looking at we would follow kind of the standard gray the standard recommendations for a multi for a ryegrass clover sward when establishing our multi-species swords i just run through a few quickly there's a good few coming in there pat and you pick up any one that well, important ones there towards the end are the emissions from the more regular reseeding associated with multi-species swards versus perennial ryegrass taken into account when comparing emissions reductions so what we had done in that modeling exercise, we'd modeled exactly what we did on the farm. So all the farm was 100% reseeded at the beginning. We had built in a higher, a twice the frequency of reseeding into the multi-species ward as the perennial ryegrass ward as well. But yeah, that 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 viewer is, is exactly right. If we are reseeding more frequently in terms of a full uh, a full plough till sow type method, then you're going to be emitting a lot of carbon from that soil. And that's not where we're looking at in terms of the rejuvenation of our swords. A specific question there about your trial showed multi-species out yielding perennial ryegrass, but the yield for perennial ryegrass is only 10 tonnes in your trial and perennial ryegrass can yield more. Yeah, absolutely. Perennial ryegrass can yield more. And, and we would see on our we would see on our grazing dairy platform as well, we're probably getting 13 and a half tonnes of ryegrass um, from, from a slightly higher fertiliser input, but certainly you wouldn't expect an extra two and a half ton from the additional quantity of fertilizers going on to our main grazing platform. 
bear in mind that these swords have been grazed in a beef system, so you're not getting daily shifts and daily allocations of grass like you would in, in a dairy system. But I, I think it's fair to say, and anybody who has visited the site, we have been slightly disappointed uh, with the with the grass yields we're, we're achieving on our fertilizer on our on our perennial ryegrass board. Uh, we have had other studies with comparing ryegrass to multi-species swords where um, we've been getting higher yields of both multi-species swords and perennial ryegrass than we achieved on this particular site. I suppose one quick comment on the site, Catherine, prior to UCD purchasing this site, it had been in continuous tillage for about 30 years. So we're working off very low soil organic matter content and, and I suppose a somewhat depleted soil in that regard. Okay, just a quick last quick question and then I'll go back to Pat. Are the seeds easy to come by? Yeah, they're much yeah. more much more accessible now than they were five years ago. Yeah. And the main seed suppliers will all have multi-species mixtures. Tommy, I, I suppose you what you're showing us in, in throughout your discussion today is is um I, I suppose a heavy shift in the, your focus towards sustainability. Is that something that at, uh, across UCD and the university sector as a whole, is it becoming a, a, a very big issue in, I suppose, both research and the training and, and education that you provide? Yeah, I think that's a fair comment, Pat. Um, you know, we recently had kind of a, a somewhat of an internal review of, of kind of the, 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 the mission of the university and, and the, key, the key approaches the university is going to take. And, you know, I, I think it's quite a statement by the university that they've they made the decision to appoint, uh, to appoint a vice president uh, for sustainability. You know, so that's at, that's at a university wide level, you know, at a, at a, at a school level, at a, at, a, at a college level, at a farm level. I think it's fair to say that we've always had quite a strong focus on sustainability in terms of our research and in terms of our teaching. And I, I go back to, to my time as an undergraduate student here when Frank O'Mara was lecturing me in animal nutrition. And Frank was talking about, you know, nitrogen excretion and reducing methane emissions from, from beef cattle and dairy cattle at that stage. And that's that has continued ever since. Um as indicated by only a subset of the work I've shown this morning, there's similar colleagues doing similar work across forestry, across tillage, et cetera. I think what's happening more now is that that's been more overtly labelled in terms of sustainability and sustainable agriculture. For a long time, we were incorporating it into agriculture. Uh, and, you know, sometimes I'm maybe a little bit uncomfortable with that with that particular description of sustainable agriculture, because, you know, a lot of what we're talking about here is a lot of good practice that farmers are already engaged in. OK, I think on that on that note, uh, we're going time has caught up with us. And we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, a huge amount of appreciation, I think, coming through uh, in the comments for, for, for the presentation you've given. Uh, and I won't uh, allude to them specifically, but but uh, I think a very high quality presentation. And thanks for that, Tommy. Uh, next week, we're going to be joined uh, by Dr. Finbar O'Regan and Ted Massey from, from uh, the Department of Agriculture. The original uh, uh, billing of this was was to deal with the fertilizer register, but the fertilizer register is not going to come out uh, as early as we thought it was due to be established uh, um, right from the beginning of the year, but there are some delays in that. So there's a broadening of that topic to cover the fertilizer database and uh, the issue of banding of dairy cows and other recent changes in the nitrates action program. Uh, so that should be uh, of interest to, to most of you, I think. So until next week, I'd like to thank uh, uh, Yvonne Marr and Andy Boland as our, our series producers and uh, say to you to enjoy your weekend and hopefully we'll see you again next week. You've been listening to the podcast version of the Chagisk Signpost series 
the weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Don't forget to join us live every Friday morning for our latest webinar. For more, visit chagisk.ie. And you can also rate, review and subscribe to the Signpost series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Mark Gibson and thanks for listening.